This episode brought to you by Healthier You. Are you living the healthiest version of you? Hi, this is registered dietitian and Run Disney race announcer, Carissa Galloway, and I'm excited to share some information about the course I created. It's called Healthier You. In my talking and working with runners, they're always asking about ways to improve their health, nutrition, and for weight loss. I took everything I've learned as a registered dietitian and made it into this easy-to-navigate 12-week course. You're getting meal plans, you're getting nutrition education, you're getting recipes, and you're getting live monthly Q&A sessions with me where you can ask your personalized questions. We've had over 200 Healthier You participants this year, and so many of them are sharing great stories of success with how simple it is to use the program and how it's made huge improvements in their energy and nutrition choices. I'd love for you to join Healthier You, and you can use the code Jeff. J-E-F-F to save $175. You can go to GallowayCourse.com or find the link in the show notes and follow me on Instagram for more information at Carissa underscore G-Way. What is magical about the Olympics is you have this group of athletes there that are keyed up to do the very best they can and they pull performance out of one another and it's exciting to see that you can do it welcome to the you can do it with jeff galloway podcast so we've made it to the 1972 munich olympics and why don't we start by you giving your perspective on what it's like to be an olympian well, most of my contemporaries who were on the Olympic team had gone to international competitions before. There usually is a ramp-up in which you start out at the national level, and then for a few years you dabble in international competition. You have some key international events, and then you are ready to go into the big dance, which is the Olympics, for me it was entirely different. I uh, had never gone to Europe. I had never uh, experienced an international event, and I had only competed in a few national events at that time. Uh, but just looking at the overall experience that goes on, I'm going to blend my own experiences with those of my contemporaries and what they reflected on and what they seem to be going through that may have been different from my experiences. I was looking at the Olympics as a great opportunity to enlarge my growth as an athlete and secondarily to expand my horizons as a human being to try to look at uh, what is it like to be in a place where the very best people in the world athletically are represented and, and right there. And my perspective on the Olympics is that it's very common in each event to have people come somewhat out of nowhere to be able to do amazing things there. Whereas there are regularly races in which they select world-class people, people that have world records. 
and place them in a given point in time. And the performances don't tend to, to uh, turn out as well as they do in the Olympics. What is magical about the Olympics is you have this group of athletes there that are keyed up to do the very best they can, and they pull performance out of one another. And it's exciting to see that. Um, and I saw it happen in the qualifying meets and in the uh, finals and and then uh, the reflections that I was able to get at the dining hall or in our room when athletes divulged why they did well or why they didn't do well. So with all that as a perspective, um, we first, as a U.S. Olympic team uh, in track and field, uh, or athletics is, is actually how it's phrased internationally, we were uh, part of athletics. That's what track and field is called. Well, we first went to Oslo, Norway, and that was the uh, brain uh, child of our coach, Bill Bowerman. Bill believed that we should have some experience in the time zone of Munich, which Oslo was, and secondarily, to have a chance to get used to a lot of the uh, things that are done over in Europe that are different than the U.S., and then finally to have a few international uh, competitive experiences so that once we arrived in Munich, we had had at least a little bit of taste of competing against some of the athletes that we would be competing against. So we arrived there. Um, About how far in front of the Olympics was this? We were in Oslo for a little over two weeks. And uh, then we head to Munich uh, about a week before the Olympics started. Now, that meant that we had time to get our administration going and also just to get the lay of the land in Olympic Village and also in Munich itself. Uh, all of us had, well, most of us anyway, had ideas about what we wanted to see and do in Munich, uh, because it's a very rich city of European history with uh, the culture of Bavaria, which is a different part of Germany. And it, it really uh, was intriguing. And Bill Bowerman also realized that if you suddenly get in to a place of competition right before the competition, that there are going to be athletes that sneak away and do things that uh, detract from their performance as a result. So he wanted people to have a little bit of time to get the lay of the land settle in, and I thought that was really a brilliant idea. Of course, there are always going to be athletes that test the system, and they did. <laughs> uh, there were even some that uh, would break the curfew and uh, would sneak in at night after curfew by throwing cloth over the barbed wire and jumping over the fence. And unfortunately, 
that is what the terrorists did. But I'll talk more about that a little bit later. So we're in Olympic Village, and we first go to the admin building, and we sit out there, stand out there, rather, for a good bit of time. Uh, we're waiting our time to go in and have our pictures taken for the ID and to fill out any remaining forms uh, that were not filled out correctly, and there were always several of those, and then to get our keys for our room and uh, just uh, maps and, and other information. And then there was always a uh, a pep talk that either our assistant coaches or Bill Bowerman gave us about uh, things to watch out for and things to not do and, you know, that, that type of thing. Uh, so we were, we were just really jazzed about uh, everything that was going on. Even waiting in line outside the admin building, it wasn't that boring for me because there was always one of the athletes that I didn't know very well who would be saying something or doing something, and I was bouncing around to to listen to what they were saying. Uh, Bill had his own agenda. Uh, Bill Bowerman was walking up and down the outside corridor right outside the admin building, and uh, I was wondering what the heck he was doing. So I asked him, and he said, uh, you know, ever since World War II, when I get into a new place, especially in a different country, I like to look over the security and these guys have a lot that's lacking here. Uh, and later on, I'll explain more about that. But uh, right from the get-go, Bill was very concerned about the possibilities of uh, some uh, terrorism or other issue in which the athletes could be in jeopardy. Well, we got our keys, we went to our rooms, and our first evening uh, in the uh, dorms where we were, which were designed to be condo units. However, they hadn't finished the area where we were. The uh, first part of Olympic Village, uh, ironically, the area where the Israelis were, uh, and in the same building, some friends of mine from New Zealand were situated. Uh, that area had been finished, and it was gorgeous. I mean, they had carpets and and uh, nice uh, artwork on the walls, and uh, it was like a showcase. Probably was a demo model for the condo units, but um, the beds were nice. They had sofas and everything. In terms of by the time they got to the middle of the village where we were located, they had not gotten any of the furniture, uh, so we had to rely on army cots for uh, for sleeping, and um, they had just uh, fold-out chairs to sit in and uh, a little table there where we could uh, eat our snacks or uh, sit around and, and talk and whatever. Uh, so it was bare-bones stuff, and the uh, the pipes would come up, and they weren't covered up at all, uh, concrete floors and concrete walls. Uh, but uh, 
it was our home at Munich, and we were excited that first night, and we talked uh, well into the night about uh, things that we hoped for and things that we had done and things that we were embarrassed about doing, and it was an absolutely wonderful evening. I mean, one of the most wonderful social evenings that I've ever had in my life is people, most of the folks, opened up. Now, they're in a roommate situation. Just to give you an idea, there were um, there were seven of us. There, there were there was a room in which two high jumpers were, and then there was a room where two middle distance runners were, and then the main um, little area where we gathered, which was to be a little living room type situation where three of us lived, because that was the only place they could plop down our army cots. Um, and out of those seven, there were three that just didn't say very much. And, and you know, part of it was maybe being shy and a group in which they didn't know one another that well. And then other things, they just weren't talkers and, and just didn't seem to do that. But the other five of us were were really just wanting to share and wanting to get to know one another. And, you know, this is life. This is just the way uh, the humans are and, and the way athletes are, too. Uh, so anyway, <clears throat> we spent the next few days getting our way around, getting to know our way around the village and uh, what was available to us. They had some recreational areas there. And uh, where the dining hall was, dining hall was a real uh, amazing experience because they tried to provide the types of food that just about anybody from around the world would would want to eat. And uh, you'd go down this whole series of uh, places to pick up food, and you could pick up anything you wanted to, regardless of where you were from. And some of this stuff was, it was really weird looking. I, now it's not now, because I've gotten used to eating a lot of this stuff and loving it. But it tasted really weird at that time. And uh, that was part of the educational experience, and it was a good thing that we had a few days to maybe experiment with these things and to realize that we don't want to try something new right now. Um, so we uh, got to know the village. They had one uh, common area, sort of a social gathering area for the athletes, and uh, you could go down there and play chess. They had a giant chess board, one of those things where it's about uh, 20 yards by 30 yards, and uh, you could pick up these giant chess uh, pieces and move them around and so forth. And they had uh, ping pong and a number of other things where you could just uh, be and, and uh, have uh, nice challenges there. Uh, very nearby, there were places to run. You had to exit the Olympic Village area through uh, security, and there were a lot of routes that were pretty well protected. Um, 
and then there was a practice track that was near the stadium. The stadium was not very far away either, so it was convenient to run over there. And adjacent to the stadium was a practice track that had access into the stadium for the athletes that were about to compete. So we got to know all of that stuff, and uh, our assistant coaches made sure that we had that experience of where to get from point A to point B and what time we were supposed to do that. And I will tell you that there was one incident where uh, an assistant coach somehow got the wrong schedule. Uh, And uh, two of our sprinters did not make it to a preliminary heat and uh, therefore did not have the chance to compete. They lost that opportunity, which was uh, really a strange deal. Uh, But uh, that made headlines everywhere around. Uh, But anyway, uh, being an Olympic athlete means that you have a certain amount of pressure that you just feel because you're there. Yes, you qualified, but now... It's your responsibility to try to do the very best that you can, and we all really felt that. So um, the rest of the few days that I had before my competition, uh, I would be pretty regimented, and I did not go on many sightseeing uh, excursions, and the ones I did were short because I wanted to get back. I wanted to make sure I got plenty of rest. I wanted to make sure that uh, I got in my workouts. Even though I knew that I wasn't going to get in any better shape, I wanted to keep the edge that I had. And in my particular uh, situation, My best event was the marathon, but I was not going to run the marathon. I was going to run the 10K. And I had not run many 10Ks the whole year. So I had to, um, I felt that I had to work a little harder on some of the accelerations and some of the speed workouts and so forth. And uh, about four days before my first race, Uh, I went to the practice track, and uh, Bill Bowerman was there. So I went over and started chatting with him at first, and uh, he gave me a couple of pointers, you know, and one of them was, be sure you don't overtrain today. (laughs) So I go down, and uh, I'm feeling the need to... uh, to show off a little in front of my coach. Uh, I respected Bowerman intensely, and I was uh, really wanting to show that uh, I really could perform well. Uh, So I did what was a standard pre-race workout, and I was clicking things off. And uh, I'm watching Bowerman watch me as I go by. So I felt, hmm, you know, I've got a a good workout going here. I'm going to run three or four more of these 400s. Well, I now know that I overdid it 
And uh, I finished up on that fourth one uh, running one of the fastest 400 meters I had at the end of any workout. Uh, and uh, I felt pretty good at the time. Uh, it came back to haunt me a little bit later. But um, the other uh, issue was that just as I was finishing up my fourth one, uh, Bowerman motioned me over and said, uh, you know, and, and I'm thinking he's going to give me a pep talk. I know uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to feel better after this. So he, he brings me over and he says, you know, uh, everybody thinks that I'm out here watching you athletes and taking down notes uh, so that I can tell you what to do. Uh, but I'm actually just peeing on the fence here. <laughs> I looked down, and sure enough, <laughs> he was a little too lazy to go to the restroom. So anyway, uh, uh, there are a lot of natural things that happen in the Olympics, and uh, uh, that was a very special experience with Bill Bowerman. So, so you were saying that, that the marathon was your better event and you qualified in the 10K. Was there still a possibility of switching? There was a conversation that that you guys had about that? Well, Bill said right from the beginning that there was no way that he was going to be able to uh, allow us to swap. And uh, he, he never really hedged his bet on that and we knew that he was absolutely adamant about that uh that's just the way he was um but um unbeknownst to me at the time my teammate jack bachelor actually went to him and asked for a special uh consultation about this and and he really uh, pleaded with him to see if we could swap. And initially, uh, Bill said, absolutely no. Uh, but as it turned out, Bill came by our room just a few days before the Olympics were to start, a few days before my race. And uh, he said, you know, I don't want to do this at all, but if you guys are really, if you feel that you are going to do better at the other event, then I will have justification for making the swap, and I'll take the slack from the sprinters that come by my door by the dozens every week who want to change their events constantly. And... Uh, so we had a discussion about it, and um, it really did boil down to me as to what the decision would be. And I very quickly came to the point that my strength in the marathon was based on me running 30 milers every three weeks. I had only run 16 miles, and I knew that I would not be an asset in the marathon with only a 16-mile long run. And so I had to defer uh, at that last minute to to not take that 
opportunity. Uh, I just wish that I had known about that even 10 days before. So, yeah, that that's uh, something that uh, not many people know about. Well, that's a little tidbit I was not expecting. So on to the opening ceremonies. Okay, well, opening ceremonies is something I had watched numerous times. It was always inspiring to me. Uh, the first uh, feeling that I had about this as I was walking over to the gathering point was, what an amazing thing to be a part of that. Oh, my gosh. And sure enough, we went over there, and everybody was dressed up in their uh, parade finest that we had for our uh, opening ceremonies uniform. Uh, it was a white jacket and uh, red uh, slacks, uh, beautiful red, white, and blue tie, and a white hat, of all things. Uh, but in any case, we got over to our part of the staging area just outside the stadium. It was a big field. And the uh, athletes from various countries had places that were blocked off for them to gather. So we get over there, and uh, we wait. And we wait. And it seems like we waited for two hours. And that may have not been quite that, but it was well over an hour. Uh, and... Nobody seemed to know when the heck we were going to be doing anything at all. So we just sat there. And to pass time, a few of the black athletes decided that they would uh, just start uh, doing something that was more fun. And one of them, after doing some uh, uh, oh back and forth two of them were just bouncing ideas back and forth. One of them came up with the idea of having a mock prayer meeting. And so they actually uh, got into this whole thing uh, of a role play as if they were in a Baptist church uh, talking, and then one of them was the preacher telling what to do and what not to do, and uh, it was quite funny. Uh so we did have some uh, improv, improv that was allowing us to pass the time around there. And uh, we got to know one another that way, too, because other people were uh, telling their own stories. The thing about uh, an Olympic track and field athletics team is that you usually don't know very many people on that team especially on the Olympics, because people are coming from all over the country. And uh, uh, there are a lot of even world-class athletes. You go and see these athletes at an international event, but you may not be around them for more than half an hour to an hour at the most at any one point in time. So you really don't know them that well. And when you're on an Olympic trip, in which you're together for two to three weeks at a time, which we were, you actually get to know them better than you ever would. And in some cases, you get to know them better than you would if they were on your own uh, college team or something like that. So 
it was a really good time together to share these types of experience, even though we were bored waiting to march in to the stadium. And then they told us, it's time to go. So we stand up and the assistant coaches come out there and they line us up the way we're supposed to do in rows and so forth and get us ready. And uh, it's it's almost uh, prime time here. And we start moving in towards the stadium and going through the tunnel. And uh, I just wasn't prepared emotionally for the response that the crowd gave us as we marched in there. The There were um, a high percentage of American fans in the stadium. And so that was one of the reasons why the cheers were so loud. But at that point in time, 72, uh, the U.S. had a lot of support from the other fans around the world, too, because it was the height of the Cold War, and uh, the Western nations were uh, really putting a lot of the stock on the U.S. to do well uh, against the Soviet athletes. It was sort of a Cold War issue with which group could do better in the Olympics. So anyway, we're marching in. It is glorious. I felt like my feet did not touch the ground as we walked three quarters of the way around the track and then found our place. Uh, the countries were lined up alphabetically, so United States of America was one of the last countries to come in, but there was one behind us, and that was the host country of Germany. So uh, we find our position next to us are the West Germans. And so they're all lined up there, and uh, there are some festivities that start, a couple of speeches, and then um, they're about to release the doves. And all of a sudden, and we're right next to where I was standing was right next to the West Germans. Uh, almost every one of the West Germans that, that we were looking at was uh, reaching into their coat, their jacket, and pulling out some papers. And I'm wondering, what in the heck are they pulling out papers now as we're waiting for the ceremony to go on? Well, most of those papers were newspapers. And uh, they started putting the newspapers over their head as the doves were released. And we suddenly figured out why, because the doves circle right around where they're released for a couple of minutes before that. And uh, they usually drop some stuff. And sure enough, they were. And so <laughs> I was holding my hand over my head, but... Uh, uh, a coaching friend of mine, uh, the head coach of the uh, University of Minnesota uh, track team, uh, was hit pretty badly. Uh, but it was one of those real moments in the Olympics. And uh, then we march out, and, uh, oh, it was just a, a great opening ceremony, uh, great receptance by the crowd, a beautiful day, and uh, I look at those pictures often. 
So the games have begun, and you're settling into your cozy accommodations with Jack Batchelor, your teammate Leonard Hilton, uh, the High Jumpers, Bob Wheeler, Rick Woolhutter. But you also had another uh, maybe unexpected roommate in the in the mix. Yeah, uh, there were two actually. Uh, within a few hours of us opening the village, when they allowed other people to come in and visit. I get this call that I had a visitor uh, at the admin building. So I went down there, and it was my brother Charlie. And so uh, I uh, we walked together and uh, talked up to my room and so forth. And uh, Charlie had uh, been a very good collegiate athlete. He had finished 10th in the NC2A decathlon. Um, and he was actually considering uh, trying out for the next Olympics in the decathlon. Uh, so he was really interested in spending a little time when he could in Olympic Village. Well, he uh, joined in our discussion that evening, that first evening. And uh, right at the end of that session when everybody was telling stories and Charlie had some good stories that, that he told, uh, he asked everybody, all my roommates, if they minded if he, Charlie, would sleep on the balcony. Uh, and uh, everybody says, yeah, that's fine, you know. And I'm thinking most people were sort of thinking that that was for that night and Charlie was thinking it was for the whole Olympics and that's the way it was, but uh, Charlie got along really well with everybody. There never were any uh, sources of friction there. But the second uh, unexpected visitor uh, was from my Florida State days, which I had, uh, when I was working on my master's degree up until just a couple of months before the Olympic trials. And um, there was... Uh, uh, a guy that I knew there at the uh, at Florida State, who also was a uh, visitor in there, but he had gotten a press pass, so he actually knocked on our door looking for me, and uh, I had seen him. I had never really met him, uh, but his name was Ellington Darden, and he said he. Uh, he showed us his press credentials, and he said that uh, uh, he wondered if he could just uh, sort of hang out there a little bit. Uh, and uh, so I said, well, come on in. And uh, I asked the couple of roommates that were around there, you mind if uh, if he uh, sticks around here? And uh, they weren't, they didn't care at all. So uh, he... Um, takes his workout clothes and goes down and takes a strength workout in the athlete's building there. Uh, and this was a, a, a theme that happened every day. He would come to the village, he would check into our room, and then he would do whatever activity he wanted. But he was uh, sort of a, a quirky type guy that kept us entertained about some of his thoughts about various things. And my roommates really enjoyed taunting him with questions. And uh, so uh, he would come out with some 
usually outlandish comments about things, and it was really uh, uh, another source of entertainment that we had in our uh, uh, room. But um, the one incident that stands out above all others with uh, Ellington Darden, he had done a lot of journalism work for Strength and Health magazine, and the incident was that he wanted to borrow my uh, USA uh, singlet. <clears throat> and uh, I said, well, well, what is it for? And he says, I'll, I'll tell you about it, but I, I need to borrow it right now, right quick, because I've got a, uh, something to do. Well, um, he didn't really explain it. Uh, and a few months later, I happened to be shown the cover of Strength and Health magazine in which he was on the cover wearing my singlet along with two very attractive female high jumpers. Uh, so we had that. There was one other incident in which the day before the marathon, Frank Shorter uh, had joined us. Frank was my teammate from the Florida Track Club and our leading marathoner uh, for the next day. And uh, Frank was actually, uh, he came to our room to defizz his Coke uh, because he drank defizz Coke during his races. Uh, so he was spending several hours with us. And during that time period, we were having some other uh, jokes that we made with uh, Ellington Darden. And uh, somebody in our group decided that we should have a pose contest. Well, uh, Darden had actually been in several contests for uh, Mr. Collegiate America, you know, the type where you flex your muscles and uh, – you have to hit poses of various types and whatever, and then they judge you as to your muscle development. And you can imagine what we look like as distance runners, uh, absolutely zero development. So one thing led to the other, and we went out on the balcony and had a series of pictures taken of he posing with us. But before he even did that, Darden had to run down to the weight room because he wanted to to pump up just as much as he possibly could. <laughs> and it was a sore, another source of uh, fun and laughter for us. So some of the other uh, absurd things that bored athletes do when they have a lot of time on their hands occurred uh, and was inspired by one of my roommates, Bob Wheeler. Bob was a 1,500-meter specialist from Duke, and he was also a really talented draftsman, and he actually brought his drafting tools with him for some reason. Um, so after a few days in the village, uh, and, and Wheeler was one of those guys that really never did open up. You never knew what Wheeler was thinking. He, he would never tell you some of the most embarrassing moments or any of this sort of stuff. But um, what he, uh, he did, 
is he took the little piece of paper, uh, the coupons for entry into the dining hall, and he forged passes in there. Now, why would somebody do that when they have the passes? I don't know. At first, we didn't know. But we found out later. It was a test case. He wanted to see if he could reproduce these so that they would pass, and they did. It was, they were brilliant. They were really well done. Well, he was on to other things, but he set up this whole competition among the athletes in our room to be able to see who could forge the best passes and never get thrown out. And so <laughs> there were uh, all types of uh, versions of the dining hall pass and all types of stories that would come back because a couple of people got refused and then they had to take out their regular pass to get in. It was very silly, but it was, uh, again, something that uh, competitive people do. Uh, but what Wheeler was on to was something bigger, and that is when we were allowed to see other events, uh, which we tried, which I tried to do. Uh, in other words, uh, I, uh, we had passes because of our credentials as, a, as athletes into track and field. We could get into track and field and we could get into some of the soccer games because they were in the big stadium, but we couldn't get in to any other event. And, uh, Wheeler was particularly perturbed about this, so he decided to go to work with his drafting tools and draft a, uh, a forged document, and um, he did it quite well. And he had this really well-constructed device uh, in which he would put his forged pass that had a swimming logo on it because he wanted to get in to see the swimming. The swimming was the hot event during the first part of the Olympics because Mark Spitz, the uh, star swimmer, uh, was going to win more gold medals than any athlete had ever won in the Olympics. And, uh, and he was just clicking them off and so uh, Wheeler wanted to see this, and so he had this uh, swimming logo put over his pass, and then he took a USA pin and stapled it to the front pocket on his USA warm-up jacket, and, and then he would go through the athlete's security line to get into the swimming, and it passed. I mean, he got through day after day after day until one fateful day. And uh, he was going through it, and there was a uh, an official checking it as a second checker who saw something he didn't like on Wheeler's credentials. So he goes over there, he looks at it, and then he rips it all out so he can take a closer look, and he sees the scotch tape all over it. And uh, he grabs Wheeler by the arm, and this guy is a big guy, and he has a massive arm and a massive grip. 
and Wheeler's thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm going to get caught. Uh, They're going to kick me out of here. Well, he lucked out because just at that moment, there was a group of athletes that were trying to crash the gate all at once. And so they uh, they inundated that particular line. And the guy who had Wheeler grabbed saw them coming and for a second released Wheeler so that he could grab a couple of the other guys. And Wheeler was gone, running at his 47-second 400-meter speed and got away. <laughs> so uh, that sort of ended the forging of other events. Jeff continues his Munich story, including his 10,000-meter race, on the next episode of You Can Do It!